We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, the whole thing. So open the book, (laughs) open up to the book of Revelation. Every time I I preach, I get invitations from many of you to slow down. Today I'm going to invite you to run with me (laughs) as we we do. We're going to look at this book as a whole uh, and do a survey of the whole book of Revelation. And the reason I think this is beneficial and helpful uh, is because uh, many times people look at this book and, and you know, with a, uh, they think it's hard to understand or many people avoid the book of Revelation uh, because they have been told it's unclear or uh, you read through it and you just don't know what it's talking about. But the book of Revelation is a revelation. Uh, it is a clearly written book meant to be read by the churches and understood by the churches. Uh, and it's, it's very important to understand the book of Revelation in this present age as a child of God in the church. In fact, it was written for us to know and to understand. Um, I remember teaching through Revelation here at the school. I used to teach sixth grade Bible here at the school. And, uh, and, and we would go through Revelation every year. And I remember a pastor at the time, a friend of mine, a uh, godly man, but I was telling him about that. And he just laughed. And he, he basically said, how in the world are you going to teach sixth graders the book of Revelation? No one... <laughs> totally understands what's going on in that book. And I just remember thinking, that's not true. It, I mean, absolutely, you can have some crazy theologies and read into it, and all of a sudden, now you're all over the place. But it, it's, it's a pretty easy book to understand. Um, and I think sometimes people stay away from it because they've been told it's hard, um, or it, they've heard it misinterpreted or misunderstood, and it becomes more complicated than it should be. John MacArthur in his little booklet says there's no other book that's been more misunderstood, misinterpreted, and neglected throughout the history of the church, but it doesn't have to be that way. And again, it doesn't mean that Revelation doesn't have big concepts in it. It doesn't mean that we're going to plumb the depths of it and understand everything about it perfectly, but it is simple and clear to understand. Just like the sovereignty of God is a clear and simple concept, right? God is all-powerful, and at the same time, you will never comprehend the sovereignty of God and understand what that means. Salvation is a simple uh, uh, concept to understand. In fact, I mean, anyone can believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. But to understand the depths of what is happening in salvation and the working of God and the working of man and how God saves us before the foundation of the world and predestines us and elects us and glorifies us, I mean, all that, it's just, it is deeper and deeper and deeper than you could fathom. So we're not saying there's not depth in Revelation. We're not saying that Revelation is not uh, a mind-blowing book, but we are saying that it is very clear, very simple, and we must understand it. And so I thought this would be beneficial for all of us. Um, I've been teaching through Revelation in Joel's Sunday school class, so it, I had to do a deep dive because I jumped in the middle of it, and this was very helpful for me. I taught this in the college group. They said it wasn't very helpful for them, but I'm hoping that it'll, I'm just kidding, <laughs> I'm hoping that this will be uh, helpful for us. Uh, because having an accurate understanding of the ending helps us to live with precision in the present, right? We know that with many things in life. We do that with our money, and we plan ahead for the future, and we make decisions today that will aim towards a goal that we have to make us financially stable. We do this with our families and, 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 and our, with our parenting, and we look ahead at what we want our children to know and to believe and, and where we want them to end up, and we make decisions in the present that affect that end. Does that make sense? We do this in a lot of things in our life, but we need to be doing this uh, with our life as a whole and with the, the entire concept of creation. Jesus Christ has revealed to us very clearly exactly what happens 
in the end. And that has total application and implications on our life presently here today as we sit in this room together. So that's what I hope that we do today as we study this book and we look at it and we do like a a quick overview of Revelation. Um, We want to have an accurate understanding that helps us to live with precision in the present. Revelation unveils the ultimate sovereignty, power, and triumph of Jesus Christ even using evil forces and wickedness in this world, all only to accomplish his perfect will and plan. I mean, think about that. You see in Revelation how the Antichrist and the false prophet and all the kings of the world and the evil world system and all of that culminates in gathering everyone together just so they can be destroyed by Christ when he returns. And it's perfectly orchestrated. Nothing is outside of his will and his plan. Even evil today only accomplishes his perfect will, his glory, and results in the good of all of his children. Nothing else could happen because that's what the Lord does. Revelation uncovers the vanity of the world, the futility of the hopes of mankind and their theories and their ambitions. It should remind us that we need to escape those things, that we don't need to mix the things of the world with the things of God because the things of the world are destined to perish and the things of God are destined to remain. Revelation exposes the evil, vile, satanic origins of all religions, all philosophies, all ideologies, and all worldviews that oppose the truth of God's written, revealed word. 100% they're all sourced from the exact same place. And they all are meant to cause you to doubt or not to believe in the truth of God's word. Revelation is full of warnings for those who read it to flee from sin, to cling to Jesus Christ, to forsake this present world system. And again, it shows the ending to remind you that there is nothing here for us. Flee from this world. Escape from the things of this world. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus Christ. Don't lose your soul for the sake of anything here on this planet. Revelation is full of reminders for those who read it to gain insight into the fulfilled promises and blessings of Jesus Christ for those who believe in him. And they're glorious and they're wonderful. And as you see each of the, uh, the, the groups, the people of God begin to, 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 to be there in heaven and then to return with Christ on earth, it's a reminder for us that this is our future and this is what he will do. He fulfills all of his promises exactly like he says, perfectly like he says. Every covenant that he's made in the word of God and every promise that he has made will be fulfilled to the word just like he says. And Revelation also reveals to us that not knowing this book with clarity is a detriment to our present life with Christ. It's an impairment to our pursuit of holiness. You must read and listen and understand and heed the things written in this book. I mean, we don't do that with any other book. We don't look at Ephesians and go, well, that was written to a bunch of people 2,000 years ago. There's no relevance there for me. You know what I mean? We read it. We understand it was written to a historical group of people But then we apply it, everything in it to us because there's commands, there's promises, there's there's imperative uh, uh, commands for the church to to live in accordance the way God wants us to live. Revelation is the same thing, but it's it's a prophetic book. Now that being said, it's still simple to interpret and understand. Um, and it's clearly revealed to, to be understood. And we have to know that. The Lord revealed revelation to us purposefully 
so that we would be warned, encouraged, and exhorted to live in faithfulness, to be pure, and to persevere to the end. And you're going to see that in the book of Revelation as you read it. Actually, look at Revelation 1 right now. In Revelation 1, the Lord reveals to us why this book is written and given to us. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's three things there. You must read, you must listen to what he says, and you must heed, submit yourself underneath it, listen to the warnings, and then live in accordance to what he says in his word. If you keep going in verses 10 through 11, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, which is the voice of Christ in the context, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. This was meant to be written down and sent to the seven churches so that they could listen and heed the words that God had revealed to them. And for us, in the same way, we take these words and we listen to what he says and we heed what he says. If you keep reading down verse 19, it's kind of like a, a table of contents for the book of Revelation. And it tells you what is going to be written down. Again, there's a lot of clarity here. There's a lot of structure to make it very clear. Revelation 119, he says, therefore, write down the things which you have seen. That's what is occurring right now in front of John. Write down the things which are, those are the messages to the churches that are happening currently at his time, and the things which will take place after these things, referring to the rest of Revelation 4 through 22 that talks about the end times. So Revelation 1 tells us that this was meant for the church. It tells us it is meant to be read, to be listened to, and to be heeded, to be, to be applied, to be, um, uh, to be obeyed. And then Revelation twenty two sixteen. Jesus kind of sums it up by saying, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. It is meant for us and is meant to be understood. This was written for the church. So, all that being said, one of the keys to understanding Revelation is to read the whole Bible. You read the whole Bible and the last chapter makes a lot of sense. Just like any book that you read. If you pick up Huck Finn and read the last chapter, you can be like, oh, that was a good ending. But you have no idea how we got there and what's going on. You don't do that with any book. Well, I guess you do <laughs> if you're cheating. You know, you're trying to write the Cliff Notes version for, for your paper. But other than that, we don't want to cheat on the Word of God. You want to read the whole thing. Understanding Genesis through Revelation makes Revelation make sense. A lack of understanding of Genesis through Revelation, Revelation does get complicated because you don't know God's Word. In fact, Revelation is built on the Old Testament. If you know the Old Testament, Revelation is simple to understand. If you haven't read the Old Testament, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be weird. You've got to read the whole book. Joel James, actually, I, I need to say this, that this whole thing is heavily influenced by three sources. Joel James uh, has a survey on Revelation, a very good kind of overview, does something similar to what we're doing today. William Barrick, one of my professors out at Masters, did a, uh, his notes, a survey on Revelation. And John MacArthur has a little booklet that you can get uh, that kind of gives you an overview of Revelation. But Joel James in his um, survey says that 278 of the 404 verses in Revelation draw on the Old Testament either by way of direct quote, which is rare, or by allusion. There's similar wording and descriptions of an Old Testament passage that is being brought together here. 
In fact, that's what Revelation is doing. It's systematizing, it's organizing many Old Testament prophecies and presenting them in a chronological fashion focused primarily on the last seven years of this present age before the return of Christ. And, and within that, very focused on the last three and a half years. And then a little bit on the millennial kingdom, a little bit on the eternal kingdom, uh, but much about the wrath of God being poured out here on earth. And like I said, there's a lot more that makes it make more sense if you read the Old Testament. And I'll throw some of those out as we're going along the way. But the main focus of the majority of this book is the heavenly perspective. You know, basically, we're in heaven with God as Jesus Christ begins to break the seals as the wrath of God is being poured out on earth. And you see the Lord commanding angels, the Lord commanding uh, uh, his messengers to go and to proclaim things and to do his work. And all of those have effects here on the earth. And like I said, the effects that you see here on earth are actually better explained in the Old Testament. Uh, what we see in Revelation is the working behind the things that happen on earth. So if you want to get a better understanding of Revelation and just kind of the quick overview, some of the main places in the Old Testament to at least go read these, but to read the whole thing is, is much better. But Deuteronomy 29 through 32, uh, many of the Psalms give us insight into the millennial kingdom, the judgment of God, things like that, especially the royal Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, Psalm 132. Those give us very clear insight into Christ's reign and rule and judgment. Uh, the book of Isaiah, the whole thing, you want to know about the millennial kingdom? The book of Isaiah is the key to understanding the millennial kingdom and the millennial reign of Christ, especially Isaiah 40 through 66. Jeremiah has a lot to say. Ezekiel is full of things that happened during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Daniel, the, the last half of Daniel, Daniel 7 through 12, give us more insight into the Antichrist and the world system and the things that are happening uh, uh, in, in this evil world system that culminates with the final Antichrist. Uh, more in Daniel than in Revelation. Many of the minor prophets of the Old Testament tell us a lot. Hosea, uh, Joel especially, uh, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah. Zechariah is kind of like the Old Testament version of Revelation uh, and Malachi. The Gospels tell us a lot, uh, especially when Jesus starts talking near the end of his ministry, Matthew 24, Matthew 25. Jesus gives us a lot of insight into his judgment that he will pour out on earth and his salvation that he will bring when he returns. Uh, you can find things in the Pauline epistles, especially Romans 9 through 11, 2 Thessalonians 2, and in Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews pulls together all the covenants of the Bible that culminate in the return of Christ and him fulfilling all of those things when he returns, which again opens up more of the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 9, Genesis 12 and 15, Numbers 25, uh, 2 Samuel 17, 1 Chronicles 17, Jeremiah 30 through 33, and Ezekiel 33 through 48. Did you get all that? All those things, uh, all the covenants of the Bible, the, it, it, Revelation pulls it all together and you see the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling it all. So all that being said, just, just read your Bible. And then when you get to Revelation, you'll be like, oh, it makes sense. <laughs> um, now, all that being said, how do we interpret Revelation? There, the, one of the things that Joel James says in his little uh, survey, and I think it's very good, and this is, I think, where people make mistakes sometimes, there is no reason to abandon the normal rules of biblical interpretation when you come to the book of Revelation. Revelation is a prophetic book that makes extensive use of figurative language, but that doesn't mean the book is incomprehensible or that the figures of speech don't point to literal meanings. The book of Revelation is by title a revelation, not an obscuration. We should interpret it with that in mind. And I think that is, is, is part of the understanding of Revelation. 
Revelation does use figurative language, just like all prophetic uh, um, uh, scripture uses figurative language. But not all things are figurative. In fact, if you understand Old Testament, one of the best ways to understand how to interpret prophecy is go read Old Testament prophecies that have already been fulfilled historically and look at how the Lord described it and then look at how it was fulfilled. Many times, there will be figurative things. Like in Daniel 8, when it talks about Alexander the Great, it refers to him as a shaggy goat. Now, the shaggy goat comes and takes over the world really quick and, dis- and takes over the world from the Medo-Persians and all that sort of stuff and rules and reigns for a short period of time. And then all of a sudden, his kingdom is divided. And then you got the different nation or the different, the different powers that come out of Alexander the Great's you know, worldwide kingdom after he dies. But all that being said, it describes him as a shaggy goat. Now, we know historically there's been no goat ever that has ever taken over any kingdom of man and ruled and reigned and taken over the world. But if you look historically, Alexander the Great did exactly what Daniel said he would do. I mean, to the T, to the point where many people that do not believe in the inspiration of the word of God say that Daniel had to be written after Alexander the Great's reign because it describes exactly what he did. Now, that being said, you can understand a little bit about how to understand prophecy. All the battles and all the places and all the things it talks about him doing, those were literal things Alexander the Great did. But he was represented by a figurative picture of a goat. Does that make sense? But the goat was a man. But that's how you read the end. There is figurative language, but the figurative language always has a literal meaning. And, and, and if you understand the book as a whole, the Bible as a whole, the literal meaning usually comes to light pretty easily. So you don't look at Revelation and start trying to find figurative meanings of everything. Just because the number seven there does not mean that you look at that as some sort of figurative magical number that's perfect in all of its origins. Or the number four is over here and it's like, well, four must represent this and three must also represent the Trinity. You don't do that stuff. Just read it as it speaks and you'll know whether or not it needs to be figurative or it's literal. So all that being said, one of the, the, the concepts is you always start by considering a statement to be literal unless it is clear that both the writer and God himself intended it to be figurative. Does that make sense? So just keep your same principles that you applied, you know, when you're reading Malachi or reading the Psalms or any other thing like that and apply that to Revelation and it's not that hard to understand. So that's the preface. You ready to start running? Uh, Joel told me to say this. Uh, actually, he said some people got their pens out to take notes in the first service. Don't do that. Just open your Bible and follow along with us. I think it'll make a lot more sense, all right? So open your Bible to Revelation 1 and follow along. If you're like, I'm taking notes, that's on you. Revelation 1 starts out with John uh, basically writing down the things that he has seen. Like I said, Revelation one nineteen gives you kind of a table of contents. Revelation 1 is the things that he has seen, which basically begins with a historical event of him on the island of Patmos as a prisoner around 96 AD, and he's writing down what happened that day on that island. Revelation 2 and 3 are the things that are. He's sending messages to seven churches. Jesus Christ gives purposeful messages to seven churches in Asia Minor uh, that existed during that time. They're like little epistles. Think of it that way. You know, you read Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians. Well, here you have seven tiny epistles. Real quick, rapid fire, but you read them like that. Um, and then Revelation 4 through 22 are the things that will take place after these things, focusing on 
the, the last years of this present age before Christ's return. So it, um, Revelation 4 through 22 focuses mainly on the seven years before the return of Christ, uh, an even closer look on the last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation, a tiny glimpse into the millennial kingdom and the reign of Christ, uh, his judgment on, on all sin and all sinners, and the eternal kingdom. But like I said, there's more in the Old Testament on that stuff than there is in Revelation. So Revelation 1 opens uh, with Jesus Christ appearing to John, and it opens like many other epistles. Actually, if you read the first eight verses, it looks like a lot of the other epistles and a lot of the other openings uh, that we have. It's in verse 9 that things get different. Uh, Jesus Christ appears in his glory to John on this island, and John sees him in his glory. Uh, Now, John had seen him in his glory one other time that we know of in Matthew 17, when him and Peter and James went up on uh, a mountain with Jesus, and he was transfigured before their eyes, and it says that, that his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light, and God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So John had seen a glimpse of the glory of Christ before, uh, and, and here John basically sees that glorified Christ once again, and Christ comes to John to reveal to John what he will do in his glory before he returns and when he returns, and that's the purpose of the book. And so chapter one is Jesus showing up to John. Chapters two and three, if you flip there in your Bibles, uh, are the messages to the churches, Here, Jesus gives seven individual messages to seven specific churches in Asia Minor during that time, our modern-day Turkey, the, the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And each of these messages kind of has the same uh, uh, layout. They start with a description of who Jesus Christ is, which is, comes from uh, the description of himself in, in uh, the first chapter. And then uh, the church is encouraged or praised for something that they're doing. After that, the church is usually rebuked for some amount of sin that has seeped into the church that is being practiced. And the church is warned what will happen if this sin continues. So it's a warning to those individual churches. Then in the church, every church is called to repentance at that point. So he's like, hang on to the things that are good. Repent of these things that you're missing. And uh, at the very end, the church is always reminded of their eternal blessings uh, that they will receive uh, when they return with Jesus Christ. Now, the difference is, is there's no real rebuke for Smyrna and Philadelphia, and there's no real encouragement for Laodicea. In fact, uh, the, the Laodicean church, uh, he, he basically tells them, you need to believe. You need to repent and believe um, and, uh, and, 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 and be transformed. Um, so although these messages were addressed to historic churches, the warnings, the encouragement, the commands, they all have application to all the churches. Again, just like you would read Ephesus or Colossians or Thessalonians. We read those. We know they were written to a historical church, but we take that stuff and we say we, we, we understand what the Lord desires, what he commands, what he wants in his churches, and we strive to live in submission to that, both individually as a, and as a church corporately. Does that make sense? Same thing with Revelation 2 through 3. So after the messages to the churches, then we get into the things that will take place after these things. Revelation 4 through 22 is a focus on the end. And this is what draws us to Revelation most of the time because we want to understand what happens in the end, the return of Christ, sometimes just because of fascination. But like I said, you got to get past that and you got to understand these have implications on our life. This should bring joy and this should bring thanksgiving and this should bring hope and it should also bring warning and exhortation to live in purity and faithfulness today while we are on this earth. So Revelation 4 through 22 talks about the final days, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, the great tribulation. 
Um, and it basically has a chronology, a flow through it. You start with the seven judgments, and inside the seventh seal judgment, you basically look inside that, and you go into the seven trumpet judgments. You look inside the last trumpet judgment, and you get into the seven bowl judgments. Uh, and then you have the return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, the eternal kingdom. That's it. So the wrath of God from 4 to 19, the return of Christ in 19, millennial kingdom in 20, eternal kingdom 21 and 22. That's, that's the book of Revelation. And it flows. It's, it's a chronology. There's a couple of, or two or three interludes in the middle. So let's look at it. So Revelation 4, we leave the messages to the churches and we're taken to the throne room of God. And it is cool. Verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, the voice of God, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Again, quoting Revelation 1.19 so you can understand, this is from this point forward, we're talking about the future. Uh, and so we're in the throne room of God in Revelation 4. What's cool here is this is very similar to every biblical uh, uh, description of the throne room of God. Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 talk about the throne room of God with very similar language. Isaiah 6 talks about the throne room of God with very similar language. Daniel 7 talks about the throne room of God with very similar language. When Moses and the 70 elders go up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, they see God and it's described very similarly to this throne room scene that we have here. And then also, if you read in Revelation, you keep going, we're taken back to this throne room over and over and over as the song continues and continues and continues throughout the book. Revelation 7, 11, 14, 15, 19 all describe the throne room of God in these ways. And then Revelation 21 and 22, as the, the throne room descends or the new Jerusalem comes down to sit on earth, we see the eternal kingdom described in these ways. So there is, there is a consistency on describing the throne room of God throughout the Bible. In Revelation 4, we're there. Revelation 5, we're at the throne room of God and Jesus Christ is revealed. He is the lamb that was slain, that purchased men from every tribe, tongue, and nation with his blood. And he is the only one who has the authority and the ability to both judge the world, pour out God's wrath, and save his people. And he comes out and is given a sealed scroll, which is the will and testament of God, and the title deed of all creation. It belongs to Christ alone. He is the one that judges, and he is the one that inherits all things. This is all for him. And so, Revelation 5, uh, we see rejoicing at the throne room of God, and then Revelation 6, you see the judgment begin. In Revelation 6, 1... Through 8-1, you see seven seal judgments happen. Jesus Christ begins to break the seals, and then messengers are sent, angels are sent. Things start happening. God's wrath begins to be poured out on the earth. The first seal is broken, 6-1 and 2, and there's peace on earth. There's a peaceful conqueror. He's given a victor's crown, Stephanos, which means he comes to be victorious, but he comes without, uh, he comes with a bow with no arrow, so he comes without fighting and he conquers the world. So there's peace on earth. The second seal is broken in verse three and four. There's war on earth. Peace is taken from the earth. The, th- the third seal is broken after that. There is famine on earth. A day's wage cannot even buy a day's worth of food. The fourth seal is broken and a fourth of the earth's population dies. So probably through the famine and through the pestilence and those sort of things and through the war, uh, a fourth of the earth's population dies. And then the fifth seal is broken in verse nine. And you see a different thing. You hear the prayers of all the martyred saints of God at the throne room of God praying for the Lord to return. They say in verse, I believe it's 10, 
uh, they say, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the Lord tells them, rest for a little while longer until the rest of your brethren are killed. There's many more martyrs that have to die before we return and before I avenge the blood of all my saints. He doesn't return a second before he should, and he doesn't return a second late. His return is perfect, and his judgment is perfect, and he waits for the death of all of his saints so he can judge the sins of the world in all of, of his fury. The sixth seal is broken in verse 12, and creation itself begins to fall apart and fail. And then finally, the seventh seal is broken in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and there's silence in heaven for half an hour because everything from that point forward begins to move very quickly and the judgments get very, very big after that. But before we get to chapter eight, we have Revelation seven, which is the first interlude. There's a break in the chronology and we're taken back to that throne room of God and we begin to see some of the things that God is doing. In Revelation seven, verses one through eight, God marks 144,000 Israelites, Jewish people from each tribe marked and sealed by God. And these are Jews that are marked by God to survive the great tribulation and to walk into the millennial kingdom without dying. And, and, and Satan and all of his forces try to stop them and try to kill them, but they cannot be stopped because they're marked and sealed by God. There's some, a special group that we'll see again later. And then in verses 9 through 17, you see the tribulation martyrs, the ones that God said wait for earlier in chapter 6. Now they're dead, and they're joining the, so, the song of all the saints in the heavenly throne room of God. Then you get to chapter 8. In chapter 8, the, you have the, the seven trumpets that come out of the seventh seal. I always told my kids when I was teaching through this, you got to think of the seventh seal as opening. That's, the, that's it. The seventh seal is the final the, the end of the judgment of God. But then it's like you take a microscopic, microscopic view into the seventh seal and you begin to see what all that means. Does that make sense? So the seven trumpets are part of the seventh seal. And so he opens the seventh seal. Like I said, there's silence in heaven and then everything ramps up. The first trumpet is blown in verse seven of chapter eight and a third of all plant life on earth is destroyed and dies. The second trumpet is blown in verses eight through nine and a third of all the life in the ocean is destroyed. The ocean, uh, a third of the ocean is destroyed and the life in it is destroyed. Uh, in verses 10 through 11, a third of all the fresh water on earth is poisoned. Uh, and then in, in uh, verse 12, a third of all the heavenly bodies begin to fail. The stars and the sun, the moon, thing, they begin to fail. And so there'd be chaos when it comes to night and day and time and calendars and, and all that the, the heavenly bodies were meant for. So earth, uh, creation is, is, is falling apart here at the very end. The earth is becoming uninhabitable under the judgment of God. And that sounds bad, but it gets way worse. After that, in, in, cha- in verse 13 of chapter 8, the, the final three trumpets are going to be very severe. Look at what it says. It says, then I looked, I heard an angel flying in midheaven saying with a loud voice, I'm sorry, an eagle, uh, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of these three angels who are about to sound. In other words, everything we've read so far is nothing compared to what's coming. The fifth trumpet is blown in chapters 9, verses 1 through 12. And basically, a plague of demons is released on earth. Hell on earth is unleashed. 
These are possibly demons cast into hell during God's judgment at the flood. We know about these demons because of Genesis 6, 1 through 6, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5, and Jude 6 also reference demons that were judged, prejudged at the flood and are awaiting the, the final judgment in the lake of fire. Possibly they were released to, to inflict pain on earth. Um, they have a king, the angel of the abyss. His name is Abaddon in the Greek or in the Hebrew, and Apollyon in the Greek. It means the destroyer. It could possibly mean Satan, or it could be a powerful angel that was part of the pre-judgment at the flood. But whatever it is, it's five months of intense pain for the people on earth, and they can't die. It's terrifying. Whether or not you see the demons, I don't know. I imagine it would be like demonic forces right now. You don't see demons and angels around you, but they're doing things all the time. The messengers of God are always doing the work of God, and the messengers of Satan are always doing the work of Satan. They're behind every world, religion, and philosophy. All people who worship idols are worshiping demons. We know those things from the Bible. So whether or not you can visibly see these demons, or whether it's just intense pain for five months that feels like the stings of scorpions, and you can't die. They're not permitted to die. Whatever it is, it's horrible. It's awful. Revelation 9, 5 through 6 says uh, these demons were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for five months and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Again, remember who, who holds the keys to death and remember who is the one that controls these demons. It is Jesus Christ. They can only do what they're permitted and they do all that they're permitted in their evil and they cannot do anything that they're not permitted. So they inflict pain for five months, but then the next, the next trumpet is even worse. The sixth trumpet, a third of all mankind are killed by a demonic army. Uh, possibly, again, this is the Antichrist army of humans, or possibly it's a spiritual army, uh, demonic forces. But basically, they kill a third of all of mankind that's left on this earth. Um, and the ones that did not die during this plague, verse 20 through 21 says, the rest of mankind that were not killed did not repent. They would not repent. There's a diluting influence that is happening in the world this time. There's a hardening of the hearts of all people. Those who belong to him will repent and will die in the tribulation. Those who do not belong to him will hate him to the very end. Their hatred will grow and they will stand against Christ to the end. Do not be deceived. Sin hardens hearts and makes us crazy to the point where we'll stand against a holy God. Flee from sin now. Revelation 10 through 11.14 is basically a second interlude, another break in the chronology. In Revelation 10, you got three announcements from the Lord. The first announcement, God speaks and John was not allowed to record it. So, sorry. <laughs> we'll never figure that one out. Don't even try. That's not meant for us. Second announcement in verses five through seven, an angel pronounces that the end has come. It is time. And then finally, the third announcement, an angel tells John to proclaim and to prophesy all this has been revealed. Revelation 11, one through 14 is super cool. You got these two witnesses, God's witnesses that he puts in Jerusalem. They're two men that come to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of the world, specifically the people of Israel in Jerusalem, and they're invincible. And anyone that tries to kill them, fire comes out of their mouth and destroys them. No one can touch these two prophets. These are the two prophets talked about in Zechariah 4, 11 through 14, the two olive trees, the anointed ones that stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And they're, uh, they, they're in Jerusalem proclaiming God's truth. John MacArthur says these are two of the greatest characters in all of scripture, and we don't even know their names. But they come to prepare Israel for the Messiah's return. And at the end of chapter 11, you see a glimpse into the repentance of Israel. They're invincible until the Lord allows the Antichrist to kill them. 
the Lord allows the Antichrist to kill these two prophets so that the world will believe that the Antichrist is their savior. So he kills the two prophets. They lay in the streets of Israel for three days. The whole world rejoices that these two prophets are dead. And then after three days, they rise from the grave, ascend to heaven. Everyone is terrified. There's a huge earthquake. 7,000 people in Israel die. And then it says at the very end in verse 13, after 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Unbelievers never give glory to the God of heaven. I believe that this is a tiny little glimpse into the repentance of the nation of Israel at the very end, which is the whole purpose of the tribulation, the distress of Jacob that leads to the repentance of Israel. And they recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And then you can see the things that God promises them in the Old Testament. But that's pretty cool. And let's move on. Revelation eleven fifteen through 19 is the seventh trumpet. All right, the seventh trumpet, the final trumpet. And it's a heavenly celebration. It's the completion of judgment. It's the seven bowls of wrath and the return of Jesus Christ the King and the final outpouring of God. God's wrath. And then all of a sudden you have this break. Revelation 12 through 14, it's like you pull out and God gives us a, a, a figurative story that tells a panoramic view of the entire history of Israel and the Messiah and Satan's desire to always stop the people of God and to wipe Israel out from this planet. It's an allegory of the history of Israel and Satan leading up to the tribulation. There's a woman who is Israel. There's a dragon who is Satan. There's a third of the stars that are all the demons that follow Satan. And there's a male child, which is Jesus Christ himself. In verses 7 through 10 in chapter 12, there's a war in heaven. This is halfway through tribulation. Satan and his demons are thrown down to the earth. Their time is short. This is the end of the end. Then he no longer is the prince of the power of the air. He's no longer the one that, that, that can uh, approach the throne room of God like he does in Job. He is, he is cast down to the earth, and his time is short. And then he begins all of his spiritual work behind the evil forces of the Antichrist, the final years of the great tribulation. Uh, This is the beginning of his defeat. This is the beginning of his outpouring of wrath on earth. And Satan, first thing he tries to do is destroy the 144,000 that are marked by God, but he can't. Daniel 9, 26 talks about this. It's possibly the armies of Satan or the Antichrist going after them. It says the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up. Whatever it is, he can't touch the mark sealed that, that, that are going to make it through. So he says he then turns to make war in verse 17 on all the believers on earth. And then Revelation 13 describes the war that he makes. The first thing he does is he gives his authority and power to the Antichrist, a human that rises from the dead, most likely uh, with his immortal body that will endure the eternal lake of fire. We'll talk about that in a second. And he makes war with the saints and overcomes them. The Antichrist has the authority and ability not only to kill the two witnesses in Jerusalem, but to overcome the, the saints of God on this earth. And he slaughters those who live on this earth that do not submit to him. There's a false prophet that comes uh, out of the earth, it says, and he kind of finishes up this unholy trinity of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. He does legitimate miracles and wonders that cause all the earth to believe in the Antichrist. He points to the Antichrist as the one that is the, uh, the, the, the leader and the God of this world, and they worship him as God. Um, and the whole 666 thing, that's the name or the number of his name. 
No one knows who that is and what that means. Every attempt to figure that out is just bad timing. People will understand what that means when he is here. And those with discernment and wisdom, it says, will understand him by by his name and by the number of his name. They'll read Revelation and understand it. That's not for you and me to figure out. It's not Biden. It wasn't Trump. It wasn't Hitler. It was none of them. They may be antichrists that come before the antichrist, but 666, the people then will know. So don't worry about it. Uh, but at the very end of Revelation 19, we see the Antichrist and false prophet are both thrown alive into the lake of fire, surpassing the great white throne of judgment, which leads me to believe that they already had their immortal bodies. They were, they were both raised from the grave, and that's how they could do these miraculous signs and wonders and not be killed. But Jesus Christ throws them into the lake of fire. They are not judged at the great white throne with all the rest of humanity. Revelation 14 basically is the end of, of this little... Um, preview of all history. And in Revelation 14, Jesus Christ is victorious. The 144,000 appear again. They're on Mount Zion on earth with Christ on earth and they are alive. And so they made it through the tribulation. Uh, and then there's three announcements from three angels. The gospel is proclaimed one last time to all the earth. Judgment is pronounced to all the world system. And there is an eternal announcement uh, for unbelievers and believers. Eternal judgment is pronounced for all unbelievers and eternal blessing for all believers. And then finally, at the very end of Revelation 14, you see Jesus Christ and then the angels, two reapings of God. He reaps the earth. Christ finishes the bold judgments. And then the angels reaping the earth is a picture of Armageddon, uh, where it says at the very end of Revelation 14, that the blood of, of all those slaughtered at that reaping uh, went, was, was 200 miles uh, long and uh, up to four feet deep. And basically, that's the entire length of the, of the land uh, mass of, of Israel. It was a massive army come together together to fight against the people of God, and God just wipes them all out, and there's blood everywhere. Revelation 15 and 16 get into those judgments that we just previewed from heaven. We're back on the scene, Revelation 15. You have this heavenly song in heaven, uh, and uh, it's the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, and basically everyone now, all the people of God are gathered, and they are singing together uh, at the... At the um, the final outpouring of God's wrath on earth and the return of Jesus. Revelation 16 gets into the bold judgments. Uh, the bold judgments are the worst, and this is the very end of the end. And you can see the earth is, is uninhabitable at the end of these judgments. The first bowl is poured out. There's a plague on everyone who has the mark of the beast. You can go read Zechariah 14 and maybe get a little more insight into what happens through that plague. Uh, then the second bowl is poured out. The sea is totally destroyed, and all life in the sea is destroyed. The third bowl is poured out, and all the fresh water on the earth is totally destroyed. There's no, there's no uh, uh, water to drink on earth. Finally, the fourth bowl is poured out. The sun's heat intensifies, and it scorches men to death. Again, people are probably fleeing to caves and, and hiding in, in rooms, striving to, to get away from the wrath of God being poured out. Um, it's uninhabitable uh, on earth. The sixth bowl is poured out, or I'm sorry, the fifth bowl is poured out and the sun fails. There's darkness over all the earth, a darkness that can be felt. And again, I mean, that's a, a terrifying thing. The only thing that that reminds me of is, is Egypt, uh, when God brought darkness on Egypt when he was delivering his people. And then finally, the sixth bowl is poured out and it's, uh, it's different. All those other things seem super big. The sixth bowl is poured out and the Euphrates River dries up. You know, and you're like, well, that wasn't that bad. But he's preparing the way for the kings of the earth to come and to fight him. It's basically God's saying to all the people of the earth, come and fight me. And he tells them, he tells them in Zechariah, he says, beat your plowshares 
uh, into swords. Gather everybody together, the weak, the strong, the big, the small, the kings, the peasants, bring them all and come and fight me on this battlefield. And this is the Armageddon battle. And the kings of the earth come. That is brought together with the, the spirits that go out from the false prophet, the Antichrist, and Satan to, uh, to, to, to draw men in to come and to fight God and the great delusion that in Second Thessalonians uh, that basically a deluding influence is sent to the earth. And so all the people of the earth gather together to fight the great war against Christ. Uh, and it won't end well. The seventh bowl is poured out, and that's the end. There's earthquake, hell, destruction, the kingdoms of the, were, the, the earth are done. So that, that was the end of the judgment. And that's the end of God's judgment here on earth. Then, in Revelation 17 and 18, it gives us like a, 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 a insight into the world system. Uh, the fall of Babylon, uh, the fall of the world system, and the fall of all the kingdoms of the earth. You know, in the Bible, the church is always described as the bride of Christ, and here, the world systems and the, the world religions and the, the, the beliefs of the world are called the harlot. Uh, the harlot is the, the beliefs of this world, the kingdom or the politics of the world or the beast, and basically, it's showing all of the, the world force, like I said, that systematized evil force that's behind all religion and all governments to fight against the people of God. Uh, and, and, uh, and especially against Israel. Uh, in verse 9 of chapter 17, you see the five kingdoms uh, that, that, have tried to, that have fallen, uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, who have tried to destroy the people of God. The one that is is Rome. They're, that's the kingdom that is currently about to wipe out Israel while John is writing. And then the one that has not come yet is the kingdom of the Antichrist that will come. In verses 14 through 18, you see the, the culmination of the entire world system being destroyed by God. And then in chapter 18, you see all the commerce of the world and all the goods of the world and all the things of the world that people love being completely destroyed. And the people of the world uh, wail and mourn as everything around them is gone. Again, there is nothing here to hold on to. Forsake this world. Cling to Christ. Follow him. In him is eternal life. In him is, 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 is everything. This world has nothing for us. So don't let things of this world lure you in to where you'll forsake eternal life for something that is temporary and, and meant to perish. Revelation 19 is awesome. This is where Christ returns. Revelation 19, we're taken back to that throne room and the heavenly song uh, is complete. The celebration is complete, verses 1 through 6. The marriage supper of the Lamb is 7 through 10. And then the king returns. Read 11 through 16 with me. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So he's coming to, to destroy his enemies. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, that's you and me if you believe in Jesus Christ, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 17 through 21 describe the battle. Christ returns and everyone dies Instantly, uh, And then the beast and the false prophet are seized. The antichrist and false prophet are seized and thrown directly into the lake of fire, surpassing the great white throne. Revelation 20 
gives us a small glimpse into the millennial kingdom. Verses one through three, Satan is cast into hell and bound in the abyss for a thousand years and has no ability uh, to deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. So for a thousand years, Christ reigns in peace and righteousness and justice on earth and in truth while Satan is bound. Uh, and then you have a small glimpse in the millennial kingdom in verses four through six. Verses four through six, uh, the, the, those who are in Christ rise from the dead. They uh, stay with Christ in the millennial kingdom. They rule and reign with him for 1,000 years years, not figurative language, and uh, they, they, and during that time, all the promised covenants of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic, priestly, Davidic, and new covenant must be fulfilled uh, as Christ reigns on earth as king, while sin is still possible, and death is still possible, and rebellion is still possible, because read the Old Testament. And then Satan is released in verse 7, after the thousand years are completed, Satan is released from prison. He gathers together those who have feigned allegiance during this time for one final battle, uh, they come out on the plains. They're, the number of them is, is uh, great, and God wipes them out. Satan is cast into the lake of fire, where the false prophet and the Antichrist still are. And, uh, and then you have the great white throne of judgment. The second resurrection, which is a resurrection of judgment. Daniel 12 talks about that. And the judgment uh, there is sentenced to the uh, second death, the eternal lake of fire, uh, where all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ will spend eternity under his wrath uh, with bodies that will, will be able to sustain eternal separation and eternal wrath from God. is a terrifying, terrifying end, but that is our salvation because with the existence of sin and death and Hades and all that, there cannot be salvation. So at the very end there, verse 14, it says, even death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If nothing else, that sentence alone is enough to read this entire book. And understand, you need Christ today. And the last thing you want to do is die without Christ and then wake up to this resurrection. And the first time you see him face to face is when he sentences you to eternal destruction in the lake of fire. That's one verse that you need to know. That is a very, very important verse. For, those children of, for the children of God, the next two chapters are amazing. We don't know much about the eternal kingdom, but this is about it. The new heavens and the new earth are after that. Isaiah 65 and 66 tell us a little bit more about that. And, ch- and chapter 21, verse 2, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride. Basically, this is what is heaven now, descends to sit on earth in the land of Israel. And again, it's described very similarly to the throne room of God stuff earlier in Revelation in Ezekiel and Isaiah. There's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death. The first things have completely passed away. And then he describes the heavenly city, and it is glorious. It is the place that Christ has gone to make a a place for us. And here he returns not only uh, uh, with us and for us, but he brings the place down to earth and God reigns on earth uh, or lives on earth with mankind forever. Chapter 22, the very end, you see the river of life, the tree of life, uh, and the closing testimonies. And the, the very end of Revelation is, again, it concludes with why you must read this book. In chapter six, he says, these words are faithful and true. Everything in here will be done exactly as it is said. And he says, uh, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. 
These things will happen and they will happen soon. Jesus says in verse seven, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, you must understand it. You must read it. You must listen to it. You as a child of God don't have the option to say I can't understand it. You have to understand it and you must heed the words. Listen to it and submit to it and obey. Uh, Listen to the exhortations. Um, he goes on in verse 10 to say, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book for the time is near. Um, and, and those who practice righteousness continue to practice righteousness. Those who are holy continue to be holy. Verse 12, he says, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. In verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root. I am the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. And then look at this, at the very end, everything, all the, the spirit of God and all of his people pray for him to return. The spirit and the bride, the church say, come, let the one who hears, thus you and me who hears these words say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And then he says, don't add to or take away from anything in this book. In verse 20, says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. That is the book of Revelation. You got to know it. And it ends with a prayer for him to return now, for him to return and do these things now. If you pray those prayers, your prayers are added to the prayers of the saints that we saw in chapter six. And God will Answer those prayers and pour out his judgment on earth. He will destroy sin. He will destroy all sinners. Every world religion will burn. And all demons that are behind the world system will burn. And all unbelievers will burn under the eternal wrath of God. You're with him or you're against him. You submit to him and follow him because he is the Lord and Savior of all creation. Or you stand against him and see how that turns out. Those are our only two options. Revelation is a wonderful book of blessing and promises and fulfilled covenants and everything else that Christ will do. But if you are not a believer and if you are not submitting to him now, this should be the most terrifying message and sermon and book of the Bible for you because this is how life ends for you and then this is how eternal life begins for you under the eternal wrath of God forever. Of course you don't think your sin deserves that because no sinner does. But every child of God knows that if, if our Father who is loving and merciful and gracious and kind does this to sinners for all eternity, then sin is more vile and heinous and evil than anything we could ever imagine. And it warrants his wrath because he never does anything, anything out of his character. He is a merciful God, a loving God, a patient God a gracious God that sent his son to die for you. So believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your wicked ways. Repent of your life of sin and cling to him. He is our only hope. He is the only way, truth, and life and no one comes to the Father but through him. And Revelation proves that. So let's pray together and pray for him to come Lord, that is our prayer, and we want to pray this together with John, with the Spirit, with the church, with the bride, with all the saints and all those who read this book. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray for him to come soon. We pray for him to come and to pour out his judgment and his wrath on this world. 
We pray for him to come and to stop suffering and sin and death and pain and disease and sickness and, and, and evil that is present in this world. We pray for him to come and to rescue all of his people, all of those who believe in him, all of those who place their hope in him. We pray for him to come and to save us, to give us rest, to give us salvation from the battle that we have against sin every day, from the, the evils of this world that press down against us. We know our rest is in him and in him alone. Our salvation is in him and him alone. And we long for the day that we are revealed together with him, with bodies that will never die, uh, in a world that is, is devoid of sin, in a world where he reigns in righteousness and justice and peace and truth forever. And we know he rescues all of those who believe in him. He loses none, and none who believe in him will be cast out. And so our prayer, Father, is that all those who hear my voice and hear these words this morning would believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And that we would join that heavenly song that we see throughout the entire book of Revelation and that we would stand on this planet with him as he reigns for a thousand years and on the new earth as he makes it perfect anew with no trace or remembrance of sin for all eternity. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. None of us deserve this. And we know this is only possible through what your son Jesus Christ did on the cross. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen.